0: Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. When was the last time you read a book and you actually applied it to your day-to-day? Well, that's one of the things that we do within the Rising Tide Mastermind. No, it is not a book club, but we do use books to enhance our core knowledge on how we approach our day-to-day lives, how we approach the goals that we have in business and then we read those books and we figure out how we help each other with the techniques that we learn within that book to help the day-to-day we get above the day-to-day so we can affect the day-to-day if this is something that sounds interesting to you I would love it if you went to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to find out more and to see if this group is right for you Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up on our knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm your host, Trace Blackmore, and Nation, we made it to June, June 2023. Seems like just yesterday we were talking about welcoming in 2023. And now we're halfway through it. And I don't know, each and every year it seems to go by quicker and quicker. And if that's not a lesson to take advantage of each and every day, And make sure that everything that you do has purpose. Everything that you're doing is growing you to become a better you. And above all else, making sure that you are helping somebody else become better too. Now, maybe that is training them to become a better industrial water treater, or maybe that is just being kind in your words and think about that. That's all it takes is for us to be kind in our words and that changes everybody else's day. And I'm sure if you think about that happening to you and how somebody's kind words impacted you, imagine if you could get that each and every day. Well, unfortunately we can't control getting that but we can most certainly control giving that. So it's my challenge to you that you are using kind words in each and every interaction that you have. I promise it will create a ripple effect that will help not only us, but everybody we interact with. Nation, what are some things that we can celebrate in June? So I looked at the calendar and I know we are in 90 plus countries around the globe. Well, I'm looking at my United States calendar. So, for everybody in the Scaling Up Nation that is outside of the United States, you can play along with some of the things that we are doing here in June. So, on June 5th, it is World Environment Day. And this is a day meant to increase our awareness around environmental issues across the globe. And how can we be a part of that change? Well, nation. That's got water written all over it. So I urge you to see what you can do on June 5th to help some of the environmental issues that we have around our industry. On June 14th, the United States celebrates Flag Day. So be sure to raise your flag And you can learn about the flag code. We're actually gonna put the US flag code on our website. So if you ever wondered what the proper way is to display your flag, wonder no more. We're gonna have all of that for you so you can fly your flag properly. Next, June 18th, which of course is Father's Day. And Nation, I am so excited for this one because it is my first Father's Day ever. One of the items that I got to celebrate this year is we adopted our son. So June 18th is my first Father's Day and I cannot wait. On June 19th, we call this Juneteenth, And this was to celebrate on 1865, Union General Gordon Granger read the Emancipation Proclamation aloud in Galveston, Texas. And this effectively liberated all of the slaves within the United States. And this was a huge turn point because at this point in 1865, the Union was not able to do that. So, if you wanted some more information around Juneteenth, that is the official day that it started. And of course, just recently it became a holiday that we celebrate each and every year here in the United States. June 21st is summer solstice. And this is the start of summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's also the day with the most hours of daylight. So, enjoy it. You're going to get the most daylight of the entire year that day. Make sure you're taking advantage of June 21st. Also, June 24th, that is midsummer day, and this is the midpoint of growing season. This is halfway between the planting and the harvesting season. So many cultures celebrate June 23rd as Midsummer's Eve, of course, making June 24th Midsummer's Day. Nation, did you know about all those holidays? Maybe you added some on your calendar, and it's my hope you're just celebrating each and every day on your own. But now you've got some extra reasons to celebrate. Now, here are some events you may want to celebrate by putting on your calendar. The American Water Works Association is having their ACE23 conference June 11th through 14th in Toronto, Canada. This is where the water treatment community comes together to learn, connect, and inspire to solve global water challenges. The AWRA, which stands for the American Water Resource Association Summer Conference, is taking place June 17th through 19th in Denver, Colorado. This is where stakeholders across multiple disciplines come together to design, integrate, and implement programs necessary to better connect land and water planning and policy. We'll have information about this on our show notes page so you can learn more. And then finally, the WEFTEC conference, which is taking place in Chicago, is your place to learn, experience, touch, feel, all of the latest, greatest equipment and technologies in the water industry, build new relationships and figure out how you can serve your customers better. This will be September 30th through October 4th. To find out more, go to our events page where we will have all of this and more for you to browse right at your fingertips. Nation, I do want to urge you to use our webpage, which is ScalingUpH2O.com. We pack a lot of information within these podcasts, and I know that this podcast format is so beneficial to our industry because we spend so much time driving to and from our accounts. Well, when we're driving, we can't take notes. But don't worry about that. Just get in the habit that after you listen to an episode, you go to ScalingUpH2O.com and we will have everything about that show, everything about the events that we mention for you to, at your pleasure, your leisure, your safety, go through and make sure that you are getting all the information that you need from this podcast. Nation, you know, I'm always urging you to go to the events that we talk about here on the podcast. Well, one of the organizations that we really try to promote because it's been so good to me is the Association of Water Technologies. And at last year's conference in Vancouver, Canada, I saw a paper delivered that I thought was so well thought out and had some of the best demonstrations that I remember seeing in a very long time, I wanted to bring that to you. So Nation, here is that interview. I have not one but two lab partners today. So let me please introduce Louis Godbout and Samina Alungulessa of TGWT. Welcome both to the Scaling Up podcast.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Well, I was lucky to be at Vancouver last year, and the presentation that you both gave, I thought was one of the best demonstrated presentations (laughs) of user participation (laughs) or audience participation. You guys had visual aids. It was so well done, and I'm really excited to share with the Scaling Up Nation what you all found during your research of that paper.
1: Well, we're glad to share. We, we were very excited to be there, too, although we got wet. Well, I, I got Samina wet in doing those demonstrations.
0: I will say that is the first presentation that I've ever been to at AWT where there was a designated splash zone in the front row. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, before we get started talking about that, uh, how about we introduce you both to the Scaling Up Nation. So, Samina, why don't we start with you? Do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a bit about yourself?
2: Uh, Yes, of course. So, uh, I basically joined uh, TGWT two years ago, and uh, the first thing I did when I joined was to actually work on this project that we've uh, held in for two years before sharing with everyone uh, a little bit about my background. So I'm trained as a chemical engineer, and uh, I also did my master's also in chemical engineering, but a bit more on the wastewater treatment side. So I'm technically a bit of a newbie when it comes to the industrial water treatment side. Excellent.
0: Well, you could not tell any of that newbiness at all from your presentation. So you, you are no longer a newbie. You are a seasoned veteran.
1: Yes, she's a quick learner. And, uh, we, you know, it was the most wonderful addition to our team. Everybody in TGWT want to steal her away from the lab. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good in a way because she gets some field experience. But uh, so I'm, I'm Louis Godbu. I've been with TGWT for uh, over six years now, but I hail from the pulp and paper industry. I, I worked as an academic associate at McGill University's Pulp and Paper Research Center. It's a center that's existed since 1927. And the gist of my research initially was on uh, cellulose and cellulose liquid crystals. I have many patents on these uh, wonderful, colorful uh, materials. And uh, then I moved on more to colloidal science. And uh, because it's important in the pulp and paper industry industry, as well as uh, in wastewater treatment, you know, getting things to flocculate together. So joining TGWT for me was a really big change in my career, going from an institution to a small business that's... really something <laughs> you know you you look at the numbers and eventually I, I became a shareholder a small shareholder and so uh, I believe in, in what we do and uh, I enjoy myself as never before I'm the boss you see <laughs> in, in, in my little section you know for for the two of us but we're really colleagues Amina and I you know it's very enjoyable working with her if somebody listening hasn't heard
0: of TGWT, how would you describe what you all do?
1: Oh, uh, shall I have a go, Simi? Okay. Go for it. The main goal of TGWT is, uh, you know, our slogan is to make water treatment simple, durable, and affordable or profitable. So the more general goal is to offer vegetal extracts for water treatment. And that's nothing new because the very first treatment that worked in a boiler was tannin-based. But things have been refined and, you know, the chemistry is complicated, as you'll see, but we're really proud of our accomplishments.
0: So I've been told that TGWT stands for the guys with tannin. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) The
2: tannin guys and girls.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) I just think that's so cool. That's the real name. This was because we had another name and, you know, every time we came across people at the AWT, especially, they would say, oh, you're the Tannin guys. And so eventually we, we, we changed that. But it could, the TGWT could also stand for the green water treatment. Okay. Various interpretations. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm curious. You all have so much to do, and then out of the blue, you decided we're going to study carryover. Tell (laughs) us about that.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, why carryover? That that was the first one of the first questions that was asked to me. You know, as I said, I I, I've done fundamental research on uh, you know biopolymers, especially cellulose, but you know, lignin as well, and hemicellulosis. Tannins were new to me as a, an area of study, but the first thing that I was asked here was why, in most of our insulations can we go beyond the ASME limits? And that seemed like a question I could answer easily, but I was misled by the information that you find in any, you know, boiler, manual, or handbook, Because the explanations that are given for high TDS carryover are just wrong. And initially, you know, I wanted to build or construct or have access to a surface tension measurement apparatus that would work at high pressures and temperatures. But the only one I found was uh, at the Soviet Aeronautical Institute, and it it probably didn't exist anymore. (laughs) But uh, because TGWT uh, uh, offers a treatment that, that... is affordable and that saves gas and water by cycling up, we wanted to understand why. You know, there were many mysteries about uh, uh, tannins and because the chemistry is complicated, it's not obvious. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but a few years back, I did a, a presentation on the passivation layer, comparing the passivation layer that that Develops with tannins versus uh, other chemistries, and that was a first step. But the carryover issue was really fundamental. We've had uh, some of our customers who uh, had like uh, problems that they could not solve immediately. You know, a blocked uh, blowdown valve, and we have documented evidence of boilers operating at seventy-seven thousand conductivity with the uh, condensate conductivity at uh, 15 or, you know, thereabouts, micro Siemens. So that's like uh, just incredible. And it, 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 but, but what we found more fundamentally is that, you know, this type of carryover is intimately linked with the other types of carryover that, that Semina will, will go over. The reason we started this was really... Why, the, why does it work? Why has it been working? And if you look in the history of tannin treatment, you see mentions of that, that it prevents carryover. There's less foaming. And you know these documents date back centuries, really.
0: Let's define a couple of terms. So we've talked about tannin a couple times. If you were to introduce to the audience and somebody out there listening has never heard of that technology, how would you define that?
1: Well, I would say it's uh, one molecule does all because tannins, they have been of great industrial significance throughout history. And actually, the first chemical test that was ever described, and that's, I'm talking around 70 AD, Pliny the Elder describes how tannins will form a complex, a dark precipitate with iron salts. And so there's a love story between iron and tannins, but also with hardness, with other metals, they form complexes. And the very funny thing about it all is when you find all that information in an old book, a rare book, and I'm a book collector, so I know about that, the ink that is used is actually iron tannate. It's that black, bluish black precipitate. And that, that was defined as permanent ink. You know, if you look at uh, you know legal definitions of permanent ink and recipes for permanent ink, it's always uh, or was for a very very long time iron tannin. And so tannins were the discovery that tannins could prevent scaling. That was uh, you know very early in the nineteenth century. And because tannins were ubiquitous, because they were used to make leather and before plastic everything was made of leather you know the the saddles horses shoes shoe soles you have to imagine this world of the 19th and early 20th century where leather and it's still present with us and the industry is a very well established industry the tannin extract industry it's made millions over the years it's now mostly based in south america a bit in uh, south africa as well but in the united states entire forests where the trees had good bark with full of tannins the forests were stripped of the tannins because it was more precious. The wood, there was wood everywhere that was worthless. But the tannins, you know, the tannin extract companies in the 1880s, they were the Google of the time, you know, in terms of, the you know, the capitalization. And of course, you know, railroads and transportation took over them, but they remain a valuable uh, product. But the problem with studying tannins is that their chemistry is extremely complex. There are are small oligomers and there are four monomers that can be linked in two different ways. And different species of trees and plants, they have different forms of, of tannins. But what we know about tannins, their function in nature is linked to their function as a tanning agent for making leather because they are a a protection for the tree. They will Attach very tightly to proteins, and so they will deactivate the bacterial or fungi enzymes, and that's why in leather, when you seep a piece of the animal skin in a tannin solution, the tannin will absorb and stabilize the the proteins and prevent them from rotting and degrading. And if you take it into your mouth, t- pure tannin, it's extremely astringent, you know, because it reacts with the you know the the proteins in your saliva, the proteins on the linings of your mouth. And, uh, you know, of course, even if people have not heard of tannin in water treatment, they've heard of tannin in wine, if they're wine drinkers. (laughs) And uh, the same reason that your red wine goes bad is the reason that you can use it in a boiler. It's that tannins react uh, readily with oxygen. And so that's, that's why they're also an oxygen scavenger. So the next time you have a bad bottle of wine, you just throw it in the boiler and we're going to go. <laughs> well, if it's bad, it's already taken up the oxygen. So, uh, but, but this is not a, an easy reaction, Joe. T- tannins uh, with oxygen, it's a cascade of reactions. It can go in several ways, depending on pH, temperature. So those are the fundamental things about tannins is that they scavenge oxygen, they act as crystal modifiers, they act as dispersants, and they also complex metals and form these precipitates. So tannin-treated boilers, uh, they will form, like if, if there's a lot of hardness entering the boiler, they will form a sludge that will be blown down rather than forming a scale. So with all of that, let's
0: move to the other term that we're talking about today, and that is carryover.
1: How would you define that? I'll let Semina uh, have a go at that.
2: Uh, <laughs> so that's a ongoing work of two years. So I think Louis was talking earlier about some common misconceptions. And it's funny because when I started, I started directly with this project and as I was learning the basics of a boiler and a cooling tower, I was also asked to solve this really complex question. So, the process of it was uh, was really fun to come at it from both sides. But coming back to the to the carryover, so Louis mentioned there are two main misconceptions. So you have we think that high alkalinity makes the water soapy, and therefore you have more bubbles, uh, decreases the surface tension, which Louis mentioned is not true. And then we also often focused on the foam as being just at the surface. But as we dug into this whole phenomenon, we realized that we can tentatively categorize carryover maybe in three different sections. So the first one would be maybe more mechanical and that's what we call priming. So for instance, when you have a high demand of steam or when you have new equipment added into your line and you have multiple boilers and they're not well-balanced, then you can have what we call priming, where you have a depressurization and then this causes a surge of boiling. The next one would be more on the chemical side, meaning contamination. So for instance, if you have animal or vegetal fats and oils, At that high pH, they will get saponified and then you'll have this foam that you'll see at the surface. But the third one, which is what we actually focused on, so the third type of carryover, which is high TDS, high dissolved solids, that was really the beast of the whole project. Because what we realized is instead of focusing at the surface, at the foaming on the surface, we actually had to go look at the bulk of the solution and realize that when you have high amounts of dissolved solids but not any type of salt, which <laughs> that's a whole other chapter but we realized that there's this phenomenon that happens which is a bubble coalescence inhibition so at the AWT we did a presentation with a lot of visuals and the reason why we did that it's because it's just you can't really get it unless you see it and it's very simple so you know next time you boil water to make your pasta and you throw some salt in it, you're actually going to be able to see that you have those small little bubbles forming. So this bubble coalescence inhibition actually has a cascade of factors that will influence how steam is formed and how carryover can happen. And to make matters even more complex, priming and high TDS can sort of combine and create sort of intensify the carryover so that's you know i'm just scratching the surface here but this is pretty much what we've been studying for the past few years and what we've realized is that in the beginning we were very focused on lab experiments and sort of just uh, looking at what one, one thing at a time which is normal uh, but as you try to transfer your lab knowledge onto the field onto a pilot scale, a big boiler, you realize that it's a lot of little elements sort of combine and collide, and you have to basically make a lot of measurements to really pinpoint where your carryover is coming from.
0: Just recently, I was at the Association of Water Technologies technical training, and somebody asked me, why is carryover such a big deal? And I always like to explain BTU content. And, of course, that's the energy that's doing the work. And steam on its worst day has 1,150 BTUs, where water on its best day has 180. And just by knowing that, you can see that there's just not enough energy to work. So the fact that you all are helping us make sure that our boilers are putting out the right amount of BTUs And studying all of this in a lab are going to make all of us better water treaters so we can understand what's going on. So with that being said, I'm curious. So you decided you're going to discover what is carryover, how do we affect it, and what did you do then? How did you decide how you were going to test it?
1: Well, I had a eureka moment. And that were you in a bathtub, actually? (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, I wasn't in the water, but I was looking at the water, (laughs) not plunging into it. So the reason that this has escaped, you know, the true reason for carryover, the reason that it's escaped to the common knowledge is that there was confusion. Uh, We were not the first to try and see, you know, how bubbles work in a boiler. And when we did try to see videos, you know, we went like on the Spyrex Sarco site and other sites where they build the transparent boilers and you can see what is going on. But the problem with some of these boilers is that they build apart part at the surface. And so when they see the foaming, they increase the conductivity. And then when they reach that critical point, they say, well, foam accumulates. And then in one of these videos, they even simulate an image below where you see like big bubbles. And then foam at the surface. And that would be the case if the, the carryover were caused by contamination, you know, oily contamination. And, and that is really the classical case of you know, making bubbles with soap and reducing the surface tension. But you know, it's the reverse that happens in a boiler. The salts that accumulate typically in a boiler, they will increase the surface tension. So what is going on? Well, it turns out that in the 1920s, there was this professor at Ohio University. His name was Fulk. And he built an appropriate boiler to study from the bottom to the top the flow of these bubbles. But he confused two things. When you uh, increase the TDS or conductivity, are there more small bubbles generated? Or is it that the bubbles do not coalesce? And he wavered between the two. Eventually he did find the solution and that led to a lot of industrial efforts by the Dearborn company to try and find defoamers. Because you know, this problem of foaming, you know, it dates back to the beginning of uh, boilers. And you know people have thought of you know, throwing in just anything. You know? uh, the old solution was castor oil. But often in throwing in these products or trying to develop the, the products, they they were confronted with the fact that in a boiler, the chemical conditions, high pH, high temperature, is bad for almost it makes almost everything degrade. And if you keep it, if you want to cycle up, you're keeping these molecules in the boiler for a longer time. So it gives them time to degrade even more. But we'll get back to that, uh, you know, the the degradation of antifoams. But the main thing that was discovered was, and that was in the 1990s, 1993. This scientist, uh, Craig, he discovered that if you increase the concentration, of, uh, ions, you would sometimes get inhibition of bubble coalescence, but sometimes not. It depended which pairs of ions, you know, you have an anion, a cation, and he just decided to lump them, you know, in two categories. He called them alphas or betas. And if you have two alphas or two betas, you concentrate them, you get inhibition of bubble coalescence. But if you have an alpha and a beta, Then you can concentrate them, you know, as high as the solution will uh, hold them and you will never get that. And that was the start of a really serious effort to understand, you know, physically and chemically what is going on with this bubble coalescence. And so they they went into a lot of measurements And, you know, there are a thousand ways of measuring bubble size, uh, going from, uh, you know, turbidity to uh, image analysis. uh, And I'm skipping quite a few more sophisticated ones. But the consequences of having small bubbles, as Semina said, this is something you can observe. For boaters who bring their boats on freshwater lakes and in seawater, if they look back at the wake they will see that there's a lot more persistent foaming behind their boat when they're in seawater. And in seawater, also, you get a lot more of uh, uh, foamy waves. And that is because when the wave captures and brings down into the water some of the air, it creates small bubbles that will not coalesce. It's just above the critical point, seawater. And that has an environmental aspect to it too, because these small bubbles, uh, one of the consequences of having small bubbles is that the pressure inside a small bubble, this is an experiment that people will, uh, uh, a demonstration that is typical if you've taken classes in surface chemistry, you take a big bubble, you take a small bubble, and they're connected by a, a tube. And you have your students guess, you know, when I open the valve, what will happen? And people think they will equilibrate. You'll get two bubbles of the same size, but that's not true at all. What happens is that the small bubble collapses and all the air goes into the bigger bubble because the pressure inside a big bubble is much less than in a small bubble. It varies with the, the inverse of the radius. This is very, very well known. And the consequence of this in a boiler, if you have small bubbles that are created at the hot surface, which is what you want, they will detach from that surface and start, by their buoyancy, they will start floating up, but they will reach a terminal speed. And that terminal speed is proportional to the square of the radius. So, If you just have a, like, in your hand, take a fizzy drink and look at bubbles moving up, you will see that big bubbles move up very much faster. You know, as I said, the square of the radius is the terminal speed. That's for a sphere. You know, of course, bubbles are are not perfect spheres, but, you know, it's a gross approximation. And so what, what that means in the boiler, having small bubbles, is that they are moving slowly And therefore for a given amount of steam that you want to produce, there's more of these small bubbles that are slowly getting to the surface. And so instead of having 10 or 15% of, of steam in your water mass, you have 20 or 30 once you reach a critical point where the bubbles are small. And that makes that big water mass extremely sensitive Uh, small variations in pressure. It will just expand very quickly. There's no need of a phase transition. So that's one reason that small bubbles are bad. The other reason is that if the bubbles are really, really small, then because the pressure inside them is so high, that means that once they reach the surface and break open, their pressure is so high that they eject material. And once again, if you have a soft drink, in which the bubbles are very fine and you get your nose close to it, you'll feel, or even if you put a a small piece of paper above it, you, you will see the paper will get imbibed. And so these tiny droplets, they are part of the carryover because they're salty water from the boiler. And they are easily, because, you know, just as a small bubble rises slowly, a small droplet falls slowly. And so it takes only a very small amount of uh, steam flow to carry these small droplets and you will have wet steam. And the final reason why small fat balls are bad <laughs> is that uh, they act as nucleation sites. You know, the people, if you think about it, you know, everybody's done this in their life, you know, for fun or whatever. Or if you win a car race, you shake that champagne bottle and then you open it. If you don't shake it, why doesn't it spurt? Well, it doesn't spurt because it takes a nucleation site for a bubble to form for that, that gas in solution to go out of solution or in the case of steam for the phase transition to occur it needs to form an interface and because you know in theory you would need infinite pressure in the bubble but you know because uh, you know uh, it's not a, a smooth system bubbles will spontaneously form but you know this is what we showed at the AWT we had a uh, gas two bottles that we had the gasified. So we dissolved CO2 in it. We couldn't use steam, the boiling water, because that would have been dangerous. But if if you shake one, you see immediately that the turbidity is higher in the one because the small bubbles are not coalesce, coalescing. And then when you open, you know, they're at the same pressure. There's a, the same amount of gas dissolved. But Because there are many more small bubbles, when you open the one that is above that critical uh, concentration, it will really spark like crazy. And the other one will sort of, you know, do a fine spark. So that's what we discovered, that everything was linked. It was a great demonstration, and you all definitely
0: prove when it comes to bubbles, size matters. How did you measure that in your experiments?
2: So I have countless hours of videos on (laughs) bubble. that's all i can say so i mean as uh, louis mentioned there are many ways to sort of quantify it let's say i know louis before i arrived at tdwt you had uh, done some maybe image analysis and turbidity uh, measurements when i arrived we went on a more visual at first uh, because it, it you can really really see it so at first we just uh we went visual about it. We used simply just an air diffuser, tried different salt concentrations, tried different antifoams, uh, tried water before and after boiler conditions and just to get a visual feel of it, let's say. Then after we, we moved, tried to make it a bit more technical, let's say. So as Louis mentioned, when you have those small bubbles that burst at the surface because of that big pressure, you get an ejection. So then we thought, OK, that's another indirect way of uh, measuring it. So we came up sort of with our little device, which is patent pending, <laughs> that would allow us to measure that, let's say, carryover potential indirectly.
1: Yes, that, that was Semina's invention, the you know just having a conductivity probe essentially with a voltage bias to bring those droplets that are ejected, if they are. But you know the the transition between coalescence and inhibition of coalescence is not a very precise concentration. It occurs over a small range of concentration. And what is really interesting, And this was not our work, but the work, strangely, you know, I worked at McGill for 20 years and Samina uh, studied at McGill and did her master's there as well. And it turned out that people were studying bubbles at McGill, but contrary to us, we want to keep bubbles big so that you know they rise to the surface rapidly they don't create all these problems that i described it turned out that in the mining and metallurgy department where there's a lot of flotation well, they want small bubbles <laughs> because there's more surface area, and you know, to attach whatever they're trying to uh, float to the surface. And so, they had done a lot of fundamental work, and, and they they had built a, a machine uh, that. There's a picture of it in our publication, but unfortunately, it, it could not work at high temperatures. You know, the materials and all that. So we didn't use it. But they they discovered that it's not really the concentration of the salt. If you have an appropriate salt, so you know an alpha cation, an alpha anion, most salts that accumulate in boilers are alpha salts. And so they will lead to carryover. But what they discovered is that there was a very big difference in concentration between monovalent salts and bivalent salts. And it turns out, for instance, you need three times more NaCl then sodium sulfate, sodium sulfate, you need maybe 0.1 molar and sodium chloride, you need 0.3 molar for the phenomenon to happen. And this was talking to us as well, because you know, the most common oxygen scavenger uh, is uh, sodium sulfite, Of course, everybody knows, you know, it's chemistry, but the reaction product of sodium sulfite is sodium sulfate. And when that accumulates in the boiler, it will lead to an earlier onset, you know, if you're just measuring the concentration of that particular salt and any bivalent salt. And so if you plot all the different salts and see what their inhibition, you know, the critical uh, inhibition concentration is you will get different values. But if you plot the ionic strength, and I don't know if it's a concept that people are familiar with, but uh, it's essentially a measure of how well charges will mask other charges. And it's related uh, to the valence or to the the charge of the ion. And so ionic strength varies from material to material. But uh, if you plot that, you get a linear equation, all the salts fall on the same line. And so it's really a question of ionic strength. And so people, of course, if, if, you, have, if you want a strategy, a simple strategy for uh, controlling carryover, of course, you can use materials that do not contribute to uh, adding conductivity. But that's like a, an obvious one.
0: So during your experimentations, you worked with defoamer. What did you find on that?
2: We we started with the basics, and we started with what is typically used in the industry, and of course, antifoams were just the obvious the obvious thing to start with, and. When we, when we started doing the experiments, obviously with the antifoams, you're expecting the foam at the surface to disappear. But we were like, OK, let's see if antifoams actually have an effect on the bubble coalescence, which is what we're interested in. So once again, took out my uh, camera, started filming and we realized that, yes, indeed, a lot of the antifoams that are presently used in the industry, they do have a positive effect. On bubble coalescence, which means even at very, very high conductivities, that bubble uh, coalescence inhibition with an antifoam present is, uh, is not going to happen. And then uh, we took it one step further and we took our little uh, you know pressure reactors and we're like, okay, let's see how this acts in the actual conditions of a boiler because that's what we're interested in. And funny thing in, and uh, Louis talked about it earlier, if, uh, if you look at typical antifoams uh, based on polyglycols, If you put them in boiler conditions, what actually happens is that they degrade into surface active substances, which means they actually create even more foam. And the higher the cycles, the higher the residence time and the more foam you're actually going to create. So you're going to keep adding more anti foam because you're getting foam and it's just, you know, a vicious cycle. So that was bad news, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, so we're like, okay, just forget about the polyglycols and let's look at some other antifoams. So let's say uh, silica-based antifoams, um, silicon. So again, we did we did the same test. They they work perfectly in ambient conditions. You know, bubble coalescence is restored Everyone's happy. We put them in boiler conditions, and the same thing again. They started degrading. You know this. So this was a bit problematic because we're like, okay, you know, the the one solution that we thought we had under control for carryover suddenly it's not working how we thought it was going to work, and I'll uh, give this one to Louis. But then obviously we're like, okay, how come how come with tannins we seem to be able to increase that conductivity and we're not getting that same phenomenon there's must be something else happening
1: yeah so the in my presentation i actually used the very first experiment that i did you know when when i had my eureka moment i immediately you know it was a simple setup I, i took a fritted glass filter as a diffuser I put it on top of an Erlenmeyer and started producing steam. And then I just poured some water into that funnel and watched the bubbles. And actually, this bubble coalescence, if you have a diffuser, it occurs at the very surface. You have the impression that the bubbles generated at the surface are big to start with, but that's because they start coalescing; they're very close together in, in a, a typical uh, fritted glass filter. You know, as soon as they touch, they become big. But as soon as you add salt beyond that critical concentration, that that corresponds to the ASME guidelines, you know, roughly, and the conductivity guidelines as well. So as soon as I did that, I saw it became milky, you know, lots of small bubbles. And then I added the tannins, and it reverted to big bubbles. And so my first idea was that having uh, digested the fact that alpha cations, alpha anions, beta anions, beta cations, and you needed to have the same, I thought, well, tannins in solution at high pH, they are anions, And many of the beta anions are organic ions, like uh, acetate. Like if you have sodium acetate, you have an alpha cation, a beta anion. You can concentrate that as much as you want. The bubbles will stay big. And so I thought, well, adding tannins, it's sort of whatever is happening physically. And that I won't go into because it's too complex. Whatever partition of ions between the vapor... And the bulk of the water is driving this mechanism, preventing bubbles, even if they if they collide together. And people have done that, you know, having bubbles collide at different speeds and see you know how they resist coalescing and how they must be kept together more depending on the ionic conditions. So, anyways, I, I thought that it was the the presence of these beta anions, the tannin anions. That was the effective mechanism. But it turned out to be wrong because when we redid experiments in very pure water, we couldn't see the phenomenon. Tannins didn't work. They needed an extra little thing. And that extra little thing is actually the presence of a little bit of hardness. And what is, uh, we haven't proven that beyond a doubt, but what we think in terms, we measured particle size, Using, uh, very well-known light scattering, uh, experiments. You know, people have that in their lab, the, you know, dynamic light scattering. You can measure the size of a particle. And it turns out that these precipitates of the uh, calcium or magnesium tannate, they have the right size to act as antifoam. And so we believe that that is the mechanism. And we didn't show that in a totally perfect manner, but we showed it empirically. When, you, when we have a boiler, we add a certain amount of tannins in pure water because we work with an experimental boiler. We went from the lab to real boilers and then we went to bigger boilers as well. But in our experimental boiler using reverse osmosis water, adding tannins and then bringing up the salt concentration, it didn't prevent carryover. Uh, but we needed to add a little bit of hardness. And people in the field, they have the misconception that if their test shows that there's no calcium, no hardness in the softening water, well, it means there is zero. There is not zero. <laughs> there, are, You can use Finer analytical techniques that will, you know, y- y- the, the limit that people have to keep in mind if they want to go beyond the ASME limits, if they want to cycle up the limit that you can see with the typical area chrome black test, you know, the pink and blue transition that everybody uses. Well, the limit there is 0.5. But if there's 0.4 present, you won't know. And if you concentrate 0.4 a hundred times because you want to cycle up, and we do that, we've done that since the first day one of of our company. You know, our company, our sales are based on energy savings. So we sell this product uh, as a a product that will allow for high cycles. And if you have 0.4, You don't see it, you think you have zero, you concentrate a a hundred times, you actually have 40, so, you know, PPM of of calcium. And that, you know, we can handle. But even in normal cycles, there's enough calcium and magnesium present to transform the tannin into an foam particle that is thermally stable. That's the key thing, as Semina was saying.
0: Is there any liability that the water treater accepts if they exceed the ASME limits?
1: Uh, well, I know that in the United States, it's one of your national sports, suing each other. <laughs> this is not inaccurate. Yeah. Here, here too, there are a lot of lawsuits, but you know these are guidelines. And we quote this in the, our paper because we found it interesting. Even on the ABMA, so the Boiler Manufacturers Association uh, of America, even on their website, when they explain what carryover is, they say this is not, you know, sometimes, you know, this limit must be respected, otherwise you'll get carryover, but in other times not. And, you know, there's no explanation to it. I don't know if you have the exact quote on hand, Samina.
2: I do, actually. So uh, it says uh, these guidelines should not be considered absolute. Some systems cannot tolerate operations at this concentration. Others operate continuously at significantly higher concentrations.
1: So it gives us a leeway because it's a guideline. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. in some countries, for instance, Germany, where we have our partners, Carn Uh, with which we share uh, our uh, knowledge and know-how and industrial secrets, they have a, a legally mandated conductivity limit. And so they are bound by that. And so they're bound not to go to higher energy and water savings. And to remind people, you know, the reason you're saving in energy and in water and if you have to pay also for uh, treating the effluent, you're saving on all that because you know if you're at 20 cycles, you're throwing away five percent of the water that you've treated, that you've purchased, that you've heated, and you know you can try and recover the heat. You know most the uh, big boilers will. You know, recover this heat, but you're still wasting a lot. You know this very well because you teach it. You know, cycling up, uh, it, your savings go down as the cycles go up. So, you know, if you go from uh, 10 to 20, that's a big gain. From 20 to 40, it's a diminishing return. But at the end of the year, whether you save 1% or 2% or even 0.5%, it is big usually. And our biggest customer is a pulp and paper mill that produces billions of pounds of steam. And we've we've had them for, you know, decades or well, close to two decades. And we keep track of the savings and remind people, you know, without us, you were not operating at these cycles. You got to
0: let them remember why you're there. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) I'm curious. This really was a fascinating study, and I appreciate you sharing it with uh, the AWT audience and now the Scaling Up Nation. What's next for this study?
2: Well, uh, as we are uh, to uh, a research duo, (laughs) let's put it that way, we're often, uh, you know, at the end of a project, we're also we are always trying to think ahead and see what uh, what direction to take, and also the direction has to to align with the mission, right? So the green water treatment, we're trying to go into a greener direction. So recently, we've uh, we've started a, a new project that is more directed, uh, let's say, towards the uh, the cooling tower side. So we're, tra- we're trying to diversify. We've, I think we've had our share, our fair share of, uh, <laughs> of troubles with the carryover and boilers. So, uh, trying to look at different problems, but it's, it's, it's always an ongoing continuation of researching and it's new things always come up.
1: Yeah. We, we have a, you know, what we develop principally in terms of, you know, Semina mentioned, we have this device patent pending. <laughs> okay. So this, this device, what it allows us to do And the advantage it gives us is uh, because there are so many variations in the the source of water, the composition of water, this device, it allows us to quickly evaluate the potential for cycling up. So we can simulate in the lab with a water sample how far people can go. I mean, as most of of your audience knows, you know, diagnosing why you have carryover, you know, you have to delve in the, you know, you have to see the system, see the operation, see what goes on. You know, if everybody at 10 o'clock opens up the valves at the same time, you know, this is a mechanical issue. And what, what we find is that, you know, most of the time, carryover is due to mechanical issues, but if it's combined with high TDS the problem is really worse. It's, it worsens everything. And uh, it makes the boiler more sensitive to any variation in pressure. But this little tool is uh, essentially, you know, people can send us a water sample or they can even send us an analysis and we can reconstitute in the lab their water sample that matches the boiler water. And then we can see how far can we go how far can we go with this treatment? How far can we go with that treatment? And many, many people, you know, the mistake that they make with the antifoams is that they overuse them. And when, when you start cycling up, of course, you know, if, if your dosage is 1,000 ppm in the boiler of your product, whatever you're using, but you're at 100 cycles, you're actually feeding 10 PPM, because it will get concentrated to a thousand in the boiler. And so as you increase the cycles, you're reducing the amount of the uh, antifoam that you're putting in and allowing what has uh, already been injected in to degrade. And so you reach a tipping point where, you know, even if you add more antifoam, well, there's already enough of these degradation products that are actual surfactants that will uh, create a problem. And so it's not the solution. If you look at the history of all this, the history of uh, the development of heat-stable antifoams, as I said, the Dearborn company had two or three scientists full-time for a couple of decades. And the best that they came up with You needed to refeed, it it worked at extremely, as all antifoams do, it worked at really low dosages, you know, less than one ppm, but it lasted an hour and then it was gone. The effect was gone, it degraded. And so that's why you can't use conventional antifoams to cycle up. I don't like people who are not skeptical. When we bring our product to people, if they say, oh, let's go, yo, we, we want this, blah, blah, blah. I don't like it because to really run a program, a high cycle program appropriately, you need to be driving carefully. You know, you're concentrating everything a hundred times. And so the least little bit of failure in your softeners, you'll be bringing loads of it and loads of hardness. So, you know, this is one consideration, but the, the carryover consideration is also quite critical. And with tannins, something that people should know is that, you know, those who are totally unfamiliar, tannins are colored, like a a boiler treated with tannins, the water is uh, whiskey colored. or bourbon or whatever your favorite. You all art. used to say sweet tea colored. I <laughs> see oh, <yes>. it's changed <laughs> to whiskey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're <are> we? <laughs> That's great. Samina, I am curious. You did such a great job presenting. What was your methodology? How did you prepare to publicly speak in front of that audience?
2: <laughs> uh, thank you. That's a good question. Uh, so I prepared the hell out of it, so much <laughs> <There> it <is. laughs> until it seemed natural. So that's the tipping point. You prepare a little bit, you sound too prepared. You prepare a lot, you sound more natural, <laughs> at least in my experience. Well,
0: Louis, Samina, thank you so much for sharing what you found during this experiment and continuing to experiment so we can all be better water treaters.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Yes. Thank you for having us. It's really great. Well, once again,
0: thanks to Louie and Samina. I really enjoyed your paper at the Association of Water Technologies Conference, and I immensely enjoyed being able to bring that to life here through the Scaling Up H2O podcast and bring that information and making it available to Tens of thousands of listeners. Now, if you are one of those listeners, and of course you are because you're listening to this, their paper is going to be on our show notes page. So make sure you navigate to ScalingUpH2O.com and we will have everything that they referenced there for your viewing pleasure. Nation, do you have a guest that you want me to interview? Maybe you went to one of the conferences that we mentioned earlier in a show and you just found the most amazing presentation that needs to be shared With the Scaling Up Nation. If you have that information, please go to scalinguph2o.com. Go over to our show ideas page and let us know what that is. We are always looking for the best guests to have on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. So you can of course become better each podcast you listen to. And of course, somebody that helps us each and every week with making ourselves better, here
3: is James McDonald. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's Periodic Water Table Topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the Water Table of Knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is... Hydrogen Peroxide, or H2O2. While we may find it in our medicine cabinets, it has uses in industrial water treatment too. First, what are these uses? How is hydrogen peroxide introduced into a system? Do you purchase pure hydrogen peroxide or is it generated in situ? If in situ, what other chemicals are involved? Is hydrogen peroxide fast or slow acting? What can cause a hydrogen peroxide solution to decompose? Is this decomposition reaction exothermic or endothermic? What are the reaction byproducts of decomposed hydrogen peroxide? Can decomposition cause a dangerous situation? How do you test for hydrogen peroxide? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learned to social media and tag it with hashtag WaterTable23 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. I look forward to learning more.
0: Thank you, James. Nation, I hope you have so many things to celebrate this June. And I hope one of the things that you celebrate is scheduling to take your Certified Water Technologist Examination I talk a lot about the CWT examination if you are in the same type of water treatment that I am because that defines to the world that you are among the people that are making this industry better. You are committed to it. And those three letters beyond your name let everybody know that. But here's what it also does. Nation, when you get your CWT, I promise it will unlock this unfound confidence within you and it will drive you to become better because you achieve something that is just amazing and you will not want to stop there. It is the key to unlocking your desire to become such an amazing force through understanding in our industry. So I urge you. To schedule to take your CWT today. And to bring you a little bit of help, I have a free course explaining exactly what you need to do in order to obtain your certified water technologist designation. And you can get that free gift by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Once again, That's ScalingUpH2O.com forward slash C-W-T Prep. Nation, I sure enjoy bringing you this podcast and I hope that you make today the best day this year. We'll have a brand new episode for you next Friday.